Hello and welcome to Games Industry Biz Podcast. I'm Dan Pearson. Um, I'm here at GDC uh, with Justin Ma and Raf Costa. Guys, uh, how's your week been so far? Uh, it's been pretty interesting. It's been a while since. Uh, this is Justin Ma here, um, half of Subset Games. Uh, we made FTL and are working on Into the Breach. Um, yeah, you want to introduce yourself, I guess? Uh, sure. I, I'm Raf Koster, and for me, the week has been exhausting. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. tiring. Resorted to naps starting on Monday, which is not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I fell asleep at like 10.30 yesterday, so <laughs> too many parties earlier on. But yeah, the week's been interesting for me, unlike other GDCs, because... Um, I've had to relearn how to talk to press, <laughs> as I haven't <laughs> had to in the past like three years. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a lot of meetings, um, very few talks, and mostly hanging out with other indie guys. It's just like a big reunion of fun party fest, generally. Yeah, I've made it to one talk, and it was by a friend of mine <laughs> uh, about a game that I was there while he was making it. So <laughs> didn't didn't learn very much. I was there to support him. I think that's that's actually pretty common, though, for people who've been to GDC more yeah. than a few times. You know, the talks are a lot of them are aimed at new entrants, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know, the longer you come to GDC, the less the talks are the important part. The networking is is critical. Yeah. That that. And ends drinking. up being yeah yeah networking catching up and friends friends you only see once a year yeah right it's like camp yeah exactly <laughs> an exhausting but kind of rejuvenating and revitalizing right I always leave GDC charged up yeah I don't know about you but I work from essentially a cave interacting with very few people so I probably talk more other than my wife I've talked to more people in the past week than three months yeah same same here same here I work uh, I work from home I do I do consulting these days and. Yeah, I work from home, and I, you don't see other developers a lot, right? Yeah. So I think it's one of the most tiring things about this, the kind of mental and social exhaustion. Like, you know, even though you don't get much sleep, I find I get home, and all I want to do is kind of sit in a dark room and not talk to anyone. Because, yeah. Like, I, also, I also feel bad, because like, I'll be having a really interesting discussion with someone, and it'll be like, if this was any other day of the year, I would be enjoying this greatly, but I kind of just want to go take a nap. You know? like I've had like three of these in like the past hour. And, and a lot of the conversations are amazing. They're like, they're better than the sessions. And then That's somebody true, says, yeah. but I have to go meet with a publisher in yeah. <laughs> five minutes and it's across town, so bye. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of that that happens. Yeah, yeah things work gets out. in the way. Gets yeah. in the way, yeah. <laughs> we should just ban all the business people from GDC. No offense to no, no, industry.biz, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think you're right. It's, uh, it, it does often get in the way, and uh, a lot of the stuff does interesting stuff happens outside the halls as well. And it seems to spread out every year as well. Like you know, increasingly, yeah. I'm just Ubering from one side of town to the other, missing yeah. out the Moscato. Yeah, which makes me just miss prior venues when it was much more compact, mm-hmm. right? It used to be we all fit in the Fairmont lobby in San wow. Jose. That's great. <laughs> like, yeah. Pretty much everybody would fit in one lobby. Yeah. It was great. It was a very well-appointed big lobby with lots of couches and pockets, but still. But still, you can feel like you know everyone involved, right? Yeah, it was actually, you know, this is, the, the San Jose years were, I guess, a bunch of the, what would that be, the 2000s, I guess, you know, that first decade, and uh, late 90s to then, you could actually see the, the social network of development because oh. like look over there is a bunch of people who are all dapper wearing blazers with turtlenecks and they all have expensive sunglasses 
those must be all the developers who are based in LA. And, <laughs> and you'd walk over there, and sure enough, it's like, oh, look, it's Lauren Lanning and the Odd World guys hanging out with Dave Perry and Jason Rubin. They yeah. were all in a pocket. And then Town you'd go someplace face. else, and you'd see, oh, look, there's the Seattle guys. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. It was All carrying their umbrellas. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I... Now you can go out to the Yerba Buena Gardens, and it's like, oh, and here's the Indies. <laughs> I, you know, that was a little before my time, but I kind of see a little microcosm of the past, like, five, six years in the indie scene, where, like, the, the early days of the indie, um, you know, IGF and all that, it just felt like everyone, there was a limited number of people, everyone knew everyone, um, and that's generally just sort of expanded and grown, yep. and now it's sort of diffused into all elements of game development, it seems Right, like. yeah. We used to run, back then, I, I, you know, I was doing MMOs, and MMOs just didn't make it onto the main track, okay. right? They were yeah. too weird. Uh, and there weren't summits back then. Hmm. Um, we used to just run parallel conferences, and, you know, a decade later, Indie did, does the same thing, yeah. and so on, right? You, you end up running, like, it starts as, let's we all do this, let's have a dinner, and then the dinner turns into, maybe we should hang out all day, and it turns into, maybe <laughs> we come in the day, to the a day early, <laughs> and we do something, and then eventually it turns in, yeah, now the process is it turns into a summit. Well, it, it makes runs, money. It makes money. <laughs> yeah. It turns into a summit that lasts a couple of years, and if it's not a fad, it kind of dissolves into the main conference, no. and then it's just in there. <laughs> VR track. <laughs> if it's not yeah. a fad. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah well, it's an interesting one. About 60% of my appointments this year have been VR. Basically. Wow, that's okay. Yeah, it won't be that way next year. No, I suspect <laughs> they're not. Going to the hall, it was just bizarre. Like felt like 80% of all the booths had something to do with VR. I did a tally. There were okay. <laughs> uh, two body gloves, three full body suits, three separate face that. scanning companies, um, one hydraulic chair, one VR bicycle, one <laughs> haptic surface thing that like used electrostatic so you could feel things with your hands while doing hand motions, one shoe insert, and one VR-powered fan that would buffet you with wind as you are playing so that you know you're really there. I was like, if there is a machine here that wafts odors at yeah. me, <laughs> VR is dead. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, they, it exists, yeah, it's yeah. just not on the floor. Okay. Yeah, they but, did a promotional one for um, the South Park game like, called the Nautilus yes. Rift, which basically just injects artificial flasks right. directly into your face. While so you're playing. Oh, ten years ago, exactly that was on the floor as a peripheral. It used little colored cartridges. It was like an inkjet printer for smells, and they were trying to get big engine companies to adopt it. Uh, yeah, that was right before the bubble crashed, yeah. right? So, yeah, if that shows up, then I know VR's over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember the, the, was, it the, was it Philips that did the kind of... Uh, Color surround as well, you know, so it's kind of you could around the, the yeah the monitor to change color with the game. That's still a thing on TVs, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, what, what have you seen that has kind of caught your eye and thought that is definitely going to be here next year? Then? Have, you, have you had much of a chance to look around on the, the expo show floor? A lot more. Um, well, over on the the expo floors, aside uh, apart from the game part, you know, um, 
engines, uh, mm-hmm. more engines than ever, and it's it's been interesting it's to like see. Amazon's lumber right. Yards. So the lumber, I yeah, obviously it's the big it, guys. Frankly. Yeah, <laughs> obviously it's the big guys like Amazon and Unity and whatever, uh, but also lots of smaller ones. So Defold from uh, King, they just gave it gave away for free the engine that they use for building every game at King, huh. and it's sitting there on the floor, that. and it's like wow. just take it. Um, there's uh, weirder ones, all kinds of interesting online things happening, like um, you know, like Playfab has just grown hugely over the last few years, uh, offering a bunch of back-end service stuff. Uh, and now Improbable is out there offering, you know, basically giant-scale MMO simulation as a as a thing, partnered with Google. So yeah, it's been interesting to see kind of the. Uh, middleware kind of getting interesting, right? I mean, there's also a billion facial capture rigs, <laughs> but um, yeah, a lot of that. that. That for me was probably the biggest other thing yeah. I saw on the floor there yeah. after a few years of it only being Unity and Unreal. Yeah. Right? It, they kind of had it sewn up for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, but Crytek basically effectively Lumberyard is... Scooped it. that up, right? Yeah, so. I did think that they might end up sort of uh, making an acquisition when they were in trouble most recently. You know, Amazon would just step in and say, "Well, you know, we kind of need to survive to do all of our tech support." So I don't think they do need Crytek anymore. No, no, I think they'll just. Yeah, <laughs> you <laughs> served your purpose. You served your purpose exactly. You were the host entity. Now we we move on. Yeah, we I don't think they can. From your carcass. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very vivid imagery. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, talking about shows and how uh, sort of relevant they are, and how sort of relevance of this sort of uh, changes every year and it kind of evolves constantly, and how that's sort of kept to be sort of at the forefront of most people's calendars. I mean, we've sort of seen almost the other end of the spectrum happening with E3. You know, it's kind of keeps shifting under the spotlight, and there's kind of sort of curling up and dying a little bit. And they changed some things this year, which is going to make things. Interesting, I think. I know it's putting a lot of press off, you know, having Do you mean the public? Yeah, so 15,000 extra people, I think, isn't it? Well, here's, you know, I mean, my first E3s were in Atlanta, um, so it's been quite a while. (laughs) The the thing to realize, I, I always tell people, look, when we say the game industry, like when we talk about what is the game industry... Um, all of the business people think the game industry means mm. whoever is running EA, whoever is running, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> whatever the popular storefronts or publishers or distributors are. Um, the industry is actually the developers because the business weasels come and go. No offense, industry.biz. <laughs> um, they do, right? The developers are the ones who actually stay yeah. in the industry 20 years. It's actually really rare to see. No, it's not that we don't lose a lot of devs. We do, no. but... Um, but it's really rare to see a game biz person who, you know, had a 20-year career. There just aren't that many. Most of them come in, do five, eight years, make a pile of money and leave. So, to me, the industry is the developers. Um, we just endure the, the, the other shifts. So, it, the because conference doing is, it for passion. That's, yeah, yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> We're not know, in it for the money. We make games because we love making games. Yeah. If, it, if we, Frankly, we could probably make more money doing other things in a lot of cases. And so... You know, E3, when it started, was really a conference for biz people to sell to different biz people. Mm -hmm. It was a conference for publishers to sell to distributors and retailers. That's what it was about. Well, there are no distributors anymore. (laughs) Like that, they used to have giant booths, and they don't exist. It's like 
a segment of the industry just vanished, right? It's they got eaten. And retailers, in the cloud. Aren't, yeah, and retailers aren't even relevant anymore, right? So it, it's not. It used to be Walmart was a make or break for you. They could like destroy your game, and, yeah. and now it doesn't matter. So, you know, if that's what E3 was for, <laughs> then what do you do, right? Well, they seem um, to be just pushing it towards for the fans, right? It's just an which is to connect yeah. with people. That's a valid fans, niche. Right? Yeah, that's a good niche. It just means elsewhere. I have no need to go there, like in terms of to learn anything about what else is going on. No, right? I mean, but, and I kind of feel for these kids who are going to be saving up two hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is for a ticket to go to this kind of Elysian field of gameplay that they keep hearing about and reading about online and all of their gems, the journalists they follow go to. And then realizing that they've paid all that money to queue up for five hours to play two minutes of a game that's not coming right. for 18 months. It, well, but that's the thing. It, it isn't in E3's DNA to actually be that show, right? That's never been what it is about. Um, it was the, Those queues were designed for press people, not for fans. Yeah. A show designed for fans looks like PAX, yeah. not like E3. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's trying to do both, or it has been. It sounds like they're trying to shift it. I mean, uh, even for the fans is kind of unnecessary. I grew up in the you know the era of like magazines being the primary source of information, and now like the thought of needing to pay attention and going to see things live or trying it is so unnecessary. When a well, there's so many other games to play at any given time. That's a separate issue. But just between streaming, between early access, between um, you know, just the myriad of ways to obtain information about things that are in progress. It's just like seeing it live doesn't matter. It's not like you only saw images on a piece of paper. Well, that's the thing. A show for the fans isn't about seeing the games. It's actually about hanging out with the other fans, yeah. right? And celebrating it's, them. And ce- yeah. yeah, so it's a completely different thing, right? That's you why go PAX to PAX is better at it. Yeah, you go to PAX to hang out mind. with the other people at PAX, yeah. right? Yeah. Like half of the fun of PAX seems to be on all the little, you know, squishy chairs all over. You know, right. everyone hanging out, playing Monster Hunter. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we we put on a couple of consumer shows uh, back in the UK. Uh, one's kind of very indie-focused one in London, and we have a, a bigger, sort of more broader one in, in Birmingham. And we, you know, we were hoping it was going to be successful. We didn't realize how successful they were going to end up being. But it is the social scene that's the biggest thing that's taken off. You yeah, know, people yeah. just want an area to hang out together, and they'll play 10 minutes of a game with a friend and then they'll talk about it with each other for for three hours. That's the key thing. They like that the dev is there. It's cool. But it's not the point. Yeah, I think that's sort of. I mean, you know, the, we we put on developer sessions as well, and uh, and sort of the passion that these these guys have to see the people who are making the games is incredible. I mean, the session we were in this morning, Justin, we went yeah. to see the uh, the Civ retrospective, and it was uh, absolutely packed full of professionals. And everyone you could see sitting there talking about how inspired they've been by this game and by, by yeah, it was a very easy uh, audience. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah. You didn't really have to put anything too controversial on to keep it. Yep. Um, we we talk, touched there a little bit on, uh, and this is a, a pretty blunt segue, but talking about um, you know people on the business side who are there to make money and then get out. Um, <laughs> we, um, we we saw a couple of uh, new people getting into the publishing game uh, this week, and uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that this is what they're trying to do at all. But um, seeing Humble getting into publishing, and even you know tiny people like um, Coffee Stain Studios at Goat Simulator recently. Um, you know, there's been I, I saw a slide. Um, I think it was in Christian Sagerstrahler's talk at the beginning of the week. Sort of a timeline that just had a little peak that just said, you know, and then a billion indie publishers suddenly appeared. Uh, I mean, is this? Do you think is this sustainable? I think you know, seeing the slate that, that Humble have got, it's amazing. There's some really cool stuff. 
Um, but you know, are we, are we going to be reaching saturation point for that? Are we going to start in terms of pub- saturation point of publishers? Yeah, I think it's it's heavily a response to the fact that there are so many in- more indie developers, and so many, and therefore so many more indie developers that find their work to be unsustainable, and uh, either by failing or just by not enough money to go around to support that type of um, you know production. And I feel like the the existence of these new indie publishers is trying to um, fill the void of maintaining that sort of uh, principles and spirit behind indie developers while still letting people hedge their bets and not every single game betting your life savings on at least breaking even. And so I, I think there's been this create this this sort of collective uh, anxiety building in the indie space. Um, and I think this is a lot of people who are like, I, I was lucky enough to be successful. We were lucky enough to have enough money, more money than we perhaps should have from the pool of indie developers. And let's just sort of spread out this buffer to protect other people. Whether or not that's every publisher's mindset, I don't know. But that's just the feeling of the general zeitgeist that I get. Yeah, I'm. I'm I take the long view. I'm cynical about it in the end. I think that uh, the large scale market forces are. Uh, we're at mature markets now, um, and in mature markets, the middle gets hollowed out. They either get bought by the big guys, or they slip down and become the lower tier, right? Um, the lower tier makes less money, and there's usually too many of them, and a lot of them get filtered out, and it, it often has very little to do with quality of the work, right? Um, unfortunately, it's just kind of how it is. In mature markets, people with marketing clout win, and... Um, if you had lots of money, then that's one way to have marketing cloud. Um, aggregation is a different way to have marketing cloud, right? So basically everybody's... Virality. Right. People are scrambling to get ways to have that cloud. Um, and it's, it's just kind of the cycle of life. I've seen it before. It, um, it's, it's going to be in... Uh, you know, we're entering an ugly time period for indie, right? Yeah. Costs are just skyrocketing. And it's going to get worse. Uh, whoever happened to get, I say lucky, but obviously there was a substantial component of skill, but whoever managed to actually build enough of a nest egg has to basically make a choice, you know, because the middle, you're not going to be able to stand in the middle. You know, over the long haul, that's, you know, we remember the middle used to be Bullfrog and Origin and Sierra and... Uh, they're gone, right? They're gone. It, you end up with either the giants or or the the tiny, and and the tiny is a bit of a crapshoot, right? It's like lightning strikes. Um, and so, you know, it, we're not there yet, but you can kind of see the line. So, I love that the indies are basically banding together to. They're basically, in a way, humble is trying to be a big guy and have this umbrella for yeah. people right so do what you want to do I you know if you don't succeed that's fine because you know we'll make sure you can still eat you know? yeah <laughs> uh, but on the other hand I'm, uh, again you know if humble succeeds and this is nothing against the humble people right if humble succeeds they should also remember the lesson of the original company that said wow we need to band together and protect a whole bunch of indie developers that are doing astonishing creative work because they are software artists electronic arts was born that way and activision 
was born as We Are the Indies Under the Weight of Atari. Let us band together and actually credit people for their games. And, you know, and today they're behemoths. So, you know, in, in some ways the strategy is the seeds of its own destruction. Now, I hope Humble never becomes Activision, but if they are truly successful, that's well, part of the cycle of life. <laughs> not, to doubt, not to doubt the lessons from experience, but I do feel personally that there's there's a bit of a different um, situation. It's just slightly different in that um, a lot of the end goal of the people in the indie space is not to scale up, and mm-hmm. which means the, the, cost of li- the cost of production. You know, especially like you were saying, with the new tools that are appearing, it's leveling the playing field where you can just have a couple of people create incredible things easily uh, for like almost no money. And, I, and the fact that some of those, like you say, by by fortune or by by luck or by skill can just make just inordinate amounts of money um it it's just it feels different it feels like um you know there's no there's no business people involved in anyone that i speak to or anyone i interact with right i'm not trying to convince anyone that we're trying to grow a company to be able to make you know exponentially more profits or anything like that it just whether or not that's a sustainable market, who knows? Presumably it's going to filter out those and separate into people who are willing to do that and who don't. Yeah. But it does feel like this specific situation, it's, it's not like exactly the same. It feels more like a creative space rather than a market, rather than a purely for-profit. Uh, I think it is now, but I think profit is, its, profit is a deadly trap basically and it, it seduces so um, I, I think maybe those people are just replaced by the new ones and just right. you know, there will be this weird bubble of yeah you, you make enough money yeah. and all of a sudden it's like wow okay we actually got this big maybe we can afford marketing or maybe we can afford a, and it just kind of happens to you and eventually people you know I mean, nobody oh, makes a game to not sell it right you know, never well no people do make games to not sell it I think that's one of the wonderful things about indie is that a lot of people do yeah. make games just for self expression well you're, you're but, describing something that is what I'm actively trying to fight against at all no, times I, I know and it is, I know it is, uh, um, are you self publishing for yeah and and I we spent we spent zero dollars on marketing and then like it, we're trying to maintain that spirit of like we're just making something that we want to make and that's it um, and oh, if there's, there's not luxury there having had a big success of course there's the only reason why we have that option is because mm-hmm. granted even if we didn't have the big success who knows but you know when we made FTL we were doing the same thing because we knew that we could live in China for dirt cheap right. like the cost of living a you know a year was like less than $10,000 for us, you know, eating simple food all the time. So, like, I I don't, I can't say if I would just go get a job then, but, like, it's totally doable to maintain that perspective, even with very minimal income. Yeah. But it, it's at great sacrifice yeah. to other things. Right. It, I mean, you say that till you have kids, right? It's, yeah. it's what happens. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's fundamentally the thing. That's why I say it's kind of cyclical. Um... You know, there, there will come a, a point where quite... I mean, there's an awful lot of small indie games being made. Um, and part of the issue is that the distribution channels are just... You know, it's, it, it's really hard to get stuff to pop. Really, really hard. And so there are going to be an awful lot of indies who will do what you're describing and then not sell a copy. For sure. And, and yeah, they just won't be able to right do now. it. Yeah, they just <laughs> won't be able to keep going. So it, it's... It's really unfortunate. I think 
you know, I think it's deeply unfortunate. I mean, I agree yeah. with you because I think we're going to lose a lot of really wonderful voices that way. And I think um, it's because it's because we we put up this. Maybe people like me are at fault here, where we put up this this sort of feeling that it is possible to be super successful, and all these people feel like this promise has been a lie when they get into it, and then you get yeah, into the situation. A lot of it. A lot of it is structural, right? So, for example, video games. Um, video games have truly shitty IP protection, <laughs> right? Truly shitty compared to every other medium, right? Sure. There, we have the least. The mechanics aren't protectable, whatever. Um, and it's not that I'm a huge fan of like copywriting or patenting or anything, but um, it's design. yeah, it's one example of um, infrastructure that other media have. And some of the others, the biggest royalties, right? Other media have the concept of royalties, and games don't. And you know, residuals, right? The fact that somebody like Donna Bailey does not make a dime off of Centipede mm. when Centipede today probably still makes bank right is tragic I mean it's 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 I mean it's it's insulting and disgusting frankly right and so we, we just lack all of that infrastructure I had a lot of bu- uh, great conversations um, including one on stage at Indicate about two years ago with uh, Greg Kostikian right now, for podcast listeners who don't know, uh, Greg got his start doing uh, tabletop games. And we're talking ones like Paranoia, okay. like classic tabletop yeah. games. And he was the he was Designer X, the guy who wrote the Indie Manifesto and hugely kicked off the entire indie game movement in, in the mid-2000s. Um, at, as late as 2006, there, it was possible to write a headline why there is no indie scene in video games. Like, that was an actual headline, right? And he really helped kickstart such a thing. But um, he and I have had a lot of conversations about is there a way to do things like residuals? Is there a way to change the IGDA into something more like a performance rights organization that can offer ongoing, like, could we get, uh, like, pennies per play? Could, like, a Google or Apple detect plints or Steam detect plays and could could it be distributed in a way that wasn't flat? He suggested, and Humble, may, I, I don't know what structure Humble is using, but he's a big fan of the Rochdale Co-op, um, which is uh, business cooperatives that are owned by everybody. So, like, I, I don't know, one of the hardware stores is like this, grocery stores are sometimes like this, where every worker part owns the whole thing. And so everybody's fates kind of rise and fall together. But in video games, uh, well, another example of absent infrastructure is unionization, right? And sure, this kind of stuff is in the air. We've been talking about it for a few years already because it's really clear. Do you think these things can change in such a large scale? I feel it's like a the great question. industry it's has different. grown like so fast disproportionately to it has so internationally as well. Yeah. They're trying to kind of get that into door across. Yeah, yeah it, and it would be a, everywhere would be else is learning right now from the bad lessons we may be teaching as a whole like China for example the game industry is yeah. going like crazy. Yeah, we're in a we're in a an economic moment right now. All of those like when that was set up for music was uh, you know kind of like early, late industrial revolution when that was set up for other things you know those Prior things were to, like, it was it was 
during a very different period uh, in reaction to um, large-scale economic forces. And right now, we're in a very libertarian, very um, free market, very even monopoly-minded economic world. So when a scrappy mobile indie eventually becomes king or a scrappy... Facebook Indie eventually gets acquired by EA, it's seen as the natural order of things. Mm. Uh, rather I think than. A lot of the Indies are trying to fight against that concept. Just yeah, like in spirit. Like a lot of the people I, think it's I know, I can never imagine them be- forming a company to become. I mean, and who knows? 20 years people change, but yeah. yeah. In Supercell, like, you know, one of the, yeah. the richest mobile companies in the world, when they got acquired by SoftBank, the guys from there went out and paid their taxes, they took out a double page ad in the Finnish national paper and said we're so proud to pay back our taxes to the country that's helped us to huh. yes. make this money. They, they just, there was only 16 of them in the company. Everyone became millionaires overnight. Yep. Nobody left. If that happened in the UK, most of the small companies I know, you would you'd see them dust. They would be right. living in TE and they would be doing everything they could yeah. to become tax efficient. Yeah. But again, I mean, we just mentioned King giving away their game engine. No strings attached, right? Really so there is a cultural... Yeah, yeah, there is a cultural thing I agree um, but I think it's to some degree generational too yeah, yeah. right yeah. Um, you know it, it geographically as well I think you know you see it's a lot in Scandinavia and, and you know the more you travel in that area the one thing I really wish that other uh, geographical kind of regions would learn from that is this sort of in uh, inbuilt socialism Kind of, yeah, it's a slightly dirty word over here, but you know, there's kind of you know, no, I approach to things. Could not agree more, and I, I absolutely see that. Especially, uh, you mentioned Scandinavia. To me, the standout is Finland. Mm-hmm. The level of um, cooperation and and friendship between yeah. studios that are allegedly competitors in Finland is amazing. It's wonderful. This, this concept is the only reason why I am in indie games. I think is because. There's such a when I went to the first GDC and I was like, oh, this is what I want to do, and I quit and made FTL or whatever. Um, it was because there of this feeling of camaraderie in the indie space of, you know, my success is not contingent on your failure. You know, like if one person succeeds, that improves everyone else's lives as well. And so um, that sort of feeling, which you know maybe is being diluted by just the broad swaths of people who are becoming Indian with different perspectives and bringing new ideas but just that that general feeling seems to persist at least among a lot of people it does I think the the place where it's the thing that puts it at risk is for a while we were in you know to use biz speak we were in blue ocean territory there was lots of room but the more the charts have come to drive you know at this point charts are the top marketing avenue for quite a lot of people and it's uh streaming <laughs> and and streaming right but um streaming in some ways is even harder than charts um uh, it's uh it's a very limited shelf in some ways it's worse than electronics boutique was once upon a time there's less slots that are less visible to to reach larger audiences but there's and, still the illusion that it's accessible by anyone like you know, yeah but it's, it's a false value yeah. or something yeah it's a yeah. false illusion though like I mean, because for the, for the 99 yes yeah. it's confirmation bias right yeah. Yeah. so and every time the igf comes around and you know i sit on the jury and you get this enormous list you think holy shit look at all this amazing stuff that's come out this year that i have someone who spends their professional life 
trying to find out about this stuff has no I, right i mean i yeah i judge awards every year and still there are games that show up at igf that i've literally never even heard of right and but the thing is those were the winners yeah. meaning to get noticed enough to make it to igf means you've already filtered out you know 10,000 things yeah. right and so uh, that's what I mean by it's structural, right? And I think that this is something all the storefronts have been trying to solve, the discovery problem. Now we've got Steam Direct versus Greenlight trying to solve it. And, but fundamentally, the question is, in serving the audience ends up happening through curation in one way or another. Because as the market gets fuller yeah, there need to be ways to you can't self curate thousands of games every year I mean, well but they're effectively it happens whether they want to or not if they have no, a I front just mean page and every individual can't see no an individual yeah, can't yeah saying. yeah totally yeah. yeah so effectively the storefronts are doing it they're picking winners and losers and they pick winners and losers in particular you know they can try to do it in fair ways or whatever but fundamentally that's what happens getting into humble is also curation yeah. right yeah. it's like yeah, you made it in the bundle. You are now a winner. You didn't make it. Steam you're has not. tried quite a lot of things, right? So they did the, the you know, yeah. your person you have your own personal Steam front page, right? And you could follow yeah. people, you know, that kind of independent curation. And they freely admitted that that just didn't work. They were actually getting fewer views on, you know, the the, the, the views of each game page was being concentrated more and more towards the top. That because people on their personal curation pages were saying, well, these are the ten most popular games. Of course, they're going to be on the right. Page. There's a there's a network effect thing that happens. The more connected a network is the bigger the hubs and so what that does is it just kind of concentrates hits and but that is why in mature markets that's the problem why publishers end up turning into what they do is because in markets like that to stay a hub when the requirement to hub keeps getting bigger you have to keep doubling down on IP, you have to keep doubling down on marketing, you have to keep doubling down on production values, you have to keep doubling down on monetization things, because otherwise you slowly slip away. Um, and that's the seductive trap, right? Uh, so I, I absolutely hope it gets avoided, but I worry that it's actually... It won't be their fault. It will be the distribution channel structure's fault. It'll be the fault of storefronts. Yeah. Right? It, it, it's, it's just kind of painful because with every choice, it, I can see the intention, I can see the attempt, I can see the reasoning, and, and I, I have yet to see something that resolves any of these. Through for FTL, you know, what, what, what was the point where you really kind of broke into that published, public consciousness? I mean, you know, FTL was in Steam before Greenlight and stuff, um, so we were like right at that last group. Um, it's hard to say. We we first um, went on to IGF China in China, and that's when we first got nominated. We're like, oh, maybe this is actually something people would be interested in. At which point, we started submitting to other things, and we got honorable mentions in the IGF, and we got um, on live had us like show at GDC randomly, mm-hmm. um, and. I, I think it's hard to say what it's just the confluence of all these things that happen at the same time we did that Kickstarter like at the same time that Double Fine did theirs like I thought Kickstarter was going to be just a, a nice way to have family give us money right and then and then everybody in the industry is looking at Kickstarter um, so it's just a lot of happy coincidences being put in front of the eyes of other people and I, well just 
I think one of the biggest reasons why FTL sort of gripped people in the industry was just the fact that it was appealing to people who made games. Like, the people who liked it the most were those people who cared about games the most, for whatever reason, um, itching some scratches. And so, like, when a whole company is acknowledging this game and everyone has tried it, and then um, that just makes it really easy for people just to have it generally be in the dialogue. And then everyone else, everything else just sort of follows from there. We didn't have to do it. Like... I have to do very little to get to talk to press, even back then, you know. And, you know, that's the only reason why we were able to appeal to people, because I had no idea what we were doing. Like, I don't know how to talk to press. I, I don't know how to, we don't, again, we didn't do any marketing, not because of a grand decision, but because, like, A, we didn't have time, B, we wouldn't know how to do it if we tried. Uh, and so, so yeah, it was a... FTL is, is one, one of those very random side examples <laughs> that uh, you know, I don't know what sort of lessons can be learned from. Although, you know, a lot of people would say being in a bunch of indie festivals and... It's true. That, 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 that is marketing. <laughs> you know, you can, only, marketing you can only be lucky. You know, you can... Yeah. What's that? You, the only way to get... Um, to win the lotteries, you know, you, well, not that's yeah. a good example, but you have to be in the right place <laughs> mm-hmm. to be able to have luck become an option. Because yeah. yeah. if you don't show to anything, you don't show to anyone, no matter how good it is, it's impossible. It's, there's zero chance. Yeah. 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 So, awesome. Well, I think that's a good note to, to round up on. Thanks very much, guys. Um, Justin, really enjoyed uh, Into the Breach. Good luck with that. Thank you, yeah. yeah. And I uh, hope you both have a great rest of the week. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks yourself. for having us. Bye, guys. Yeah.